Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for that warm welcome, and thanks to Kenny, too. Um, I don't know if you are aware of this. You're probably not. There's no reason you should know this, but the path that took me to uh, my most recent book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, began in this room. Um, so I've come here partly to repay a debt uh, to, uh, to Kenny, um, but mo much of my education in the, the hopes for transforming our food chain uh, really owes to a, to a bioneer uh, who many of you, I'm sure, have heard speak, and that's Joel Salatin. Everybody know who Joel Salatin is? Yeah? Whoa, I feel like mini-me. <laughs> um, I'm not going to look at that. Anyway, when I, was, when I was first writing about organic agriculture and the, uh, the gradual industrialization of what had been organic agriculture, um, I, I, uh, I spoke to Kenny and he said, well, you really need to talk to one of the most important critics of organic agriculture, uh, Joel Salatin. And I called him at Kenny's suggestion, uh, first to get some salty quotes about Whole Foods and the organic empire, as he calls it. Um, and, uh, and I was hoping I'd heard about this wonderful uh, pastured chicken and grass-fed beef he was raising, and I hoped he would send me a, a, a chicken or a steak. Well, I got, I got the, uh, the salty quotes I was looking for. He went on about the clash of paradigms and the Western conquistador mentality that was ruining our food system, both organic and industrial. But when I asked him for a chicken, he said, sorry, I can't do that. I said, well, you're not set up for shipping. Well, I could have the FedEx man come with the dry ice and the box and the whole thing. And he says, no, 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 you don't get it. I don't believe it's organic or sustainable to FedEx meat across the country. And if you want, and if you want to try my meat, you've got to come down here to Swope, Virginia, which I promptly did. Uh, and th thus began my education in one of the most interesting agricultures uh, going on in this country. And I won't uh, walk you through it. Um, you've heard it from Joel. Uh, you can read about it in my book. But um, I just want to give you a, a little close-up vignette because something I saw on that farm, and it may not have been something Joel focused on, uh, was a real uh, paradigm shift for me. And I think it holds the kernel of a, of a completely different way of looking at our relationship to nature. Joel, as you know, calls himself a grass farmer. If you ask him, are you a rancher, a chicken farmer, an egg farmer, you know, he'll say, I'm a grass farmer. And when I got to the farm, he insisted, before I met any of his animals, that I get down on the ground and meet his grass. And he explains something very interesting as to what happens. As you know, he grows these six different animals in this very complex uh, uh, rotation. It's kind of an animal rotation based on, on manures and grubs and all this kind of stuff. And, um, but what's happening, if, if we go really local, because I do want to talk about local food, and we go down to the level of the single grass plant in the pasture being grazed by the ruminant, before the chickens come in to fertilize that pasture, um, here's what's happening. That grass plant, which might be about this long, as soon as it is sheared by that ruminant, does something that all gardeners understand. It strives to restore its root-shoot ratio. It strives to um, uh, balance the, the root mass with the, uh, the leaf mass that it's lost. So it promptly sheds as much root as it has lost uh, at, the, at the teeth of that, of that cow. 
um, that's a very interesting process. Essentially, it's killing off its roots. And then what happens to those roots? Well, Paul Stamets' friends, the mycelium, go to work, along with the bacteria and the protozoa, and they break down those roots, and that is precisely how soil is made. We build soil from the bottom up, uh, and that is how the prairies were made, in a reciprocal relationship between the bison and the grass and, the, and all the, um, the wilderness of life that takes place in the earth's stomach, uh, the, the, the soil. Um, Joel adds to this kind of pulsing of the pasture the element of bringing in the chickens to add nitrogen to it, and uh, within six weeks the grass is back and he can run it again. And the key thing to know here is that at the end of the year, he has taken off an immense amount of animal protein from this farm. Uh, 40,000 pounds of beef, 30,000 pounds of pork, 10,000 broilers, 1,200 turkeys, 1,000 rabbits, 35,000 dozen eggs from 100 acres. If anyone says, can organic feed the world, take them to this farm. There is no question that sustainable ag can feed the world when it is done right. Um, and, but, the important thing to remember uh, I'm going to step on your applause because the, the really important thing to remember is that at the end of that year, when all that food has come off this land, there is more soil, not less. There is more biodiversity, not less. There is more fertility, not less. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because most of us carry in our heads a, a model of our relationship to nature that is zero-sum. That is, for us to get what we want from nature, whether it is oil, energy, whether it is food, whether it is entertainment, nature is diminished. We assume this to be true. We see examples of it all around. What that farm, what a well-managed pasture shows is that it is not necessarily the case. There is a non-zero-sum way to, for us to engage with the natural world. And for me, that is one of the most hopeful things I've observed in 25 years about writing about the human relationship with nature. So I don't have time to, to go through my whole Paris Hilton adventure. I, was, I worked on the farm uh, as a, as a farmhand for a week, and it was a, a brutally difficult week. I want to I go right to some of the lessons that came out of this. Um, because in, what, in challenging this zero-sum idea, it's not just about our relationship to nature, it is also challenging our zero-sum attitude toward economics. And I want to move to economics and politics and put forth the proposition that some of the most important politics going on in this country today are being transacted at farmers' markets. There is a direct line from the kind of healthy soils underneath Joel Salatin's farm and other farms like his, to, as Albert Howard reminded us a long time ago, uh, a link from those healthy soils to healthy plants, to healthy animals, to healthy eaters, and healthy economies. Um, I think local food is one of the most important political movements going on. It is much bigger than food. Um, it is the most important protest against what Wendell Berry has called the rise of the total economy. The total economy is the globalized world in which everything is a commodity. Um, everything is produced wherever it can be produced most cheaply, which is to say most destructively of people and resources, and moved to wherever it can be sold most dearly. 
this is zero-sum food economy. Uh, it means more cheap food for us, less for the soil, less for the workers, and much less for the animals. Make no mistake, under this regime, and this is the regime of free trade and food that we're, that we're hearing is, is so important, um, food is about to go the way of clothing, of consumer electronics. Our food, in the vision of the globalizers, in the vision of the total economy, will come from wherever in the world it can be produced most cheaply, freeing American labor and land for higher uses. I frankly don't know what higher use there is for labor and land than growing food, but in the views of the economists, people like Stephen Blank at UC Davis, Americans farming is like PhDs doing child's play. This is the technocratic vision. Um, now make no mistake, organic food is on the same path today. As organic food has gotten industrialized, um, we find a product such as Stonyfield organic yogurt made from organic milk powder from New Zealand, strawberries from China, apple puree from Turkey, blueberries from Canada. We are finding now, we are in the, the age of organic feedlots, organic factory farms. These were words that were never meant to be attached to one another. Um, local food economies are our best hope for checking the drift toward the total global economy. And with food is where these economies begin. A revolt is underway across this country. A revolt of small producers and consumers, and some of the most important politics today, as I said, are happening at the farmer's market. Now, we're told all this is very sentimental to go back to a local food economy, um, even reactionary. And surely there are reasons for buying local that might strike the unsentimental as a little soft-headed. We like the idea of keeping farmers and their wisdom in our communities. We like eating food in season, picked at the peak of its taste and nutritional value. The fact that you find no processed food, no high fructose corn syrup at the farmer's market. We like the idea of keeping land near us in production of food rather than houses and strip malls, defending the landscapes we love. We like what happens socially at the farmer's market, uh, which is quickly emerging as the new public square in this country. I mean, if you compare what happens in the aisles of the grocery store with the farmer's market, think about what a world of difference that is. At the farmer's market, country meets city. Children are introduced to where their food comes from. They learn often for the first time that a carrot is not a glossy orange bullet that comes in a plastic bag, <laughs> but is actually a root. How amazing. Um, People politic, they, they have petitions, they schmooze. Um, it's just an incredibly vibrant space. And I think we like how the farmer's market or CSA lets us reconnect through these plants and animals and their farmers to the natural world. We've always looked to food for that connection and food will always give us that connection. Even the Twinkie has its origins in the natural world. It's only obscured to us. Now, I am fully prepared to defend local food on those so-called sentimental grounds. Um, but I would point out here that all those benefits suggest this is a non-zero-sum economic relationship or social relationship. This is a, a lot more is going on in that marketplace than the exchange of money for food. But let me move briefly onto another ground. 
Let me move on to their ground. Let me suggest that it is the globalizers of food who are the real sentimentalists, who are, as Wendell Berry says, acting on a faith without any justification. Very much like the Soviet communists, the last great destroyers of local food economies, they tell us we need to sacrifice things we like here and now, landscapes, relationships, local enterprises, for a promise of future prosperity, that we must break a few eggs to make an omelet. What could be more unrealistic, more soft-headed, than to propose we should destroy things we have now and love in the present for the uncertain prospect of some future benefit? Let me remind you that the Soviet Union founded precisely on the issue of food. Let's stick with the eggs. Let's not make this omelet. Let me suggest that there's nothing more hard-headed or realistic than building and defending local food economies. Indeed, to do so is a matter not of sentiment, but of critical importance to national security and public health. And let me quickly run through a couple reasons. Energy, the total economy, depends on cheap energy, not to mention peace and no threat from terrorism, in order to move these goods from point of cheapest production to point of highest purchase. We will not reduce our dependence on foreign sources of energy or confront the issue of climate change without dealing with this industrial food system. This food system is consuming 17% of our fossil fuel. That's to grow the food with fossil fuel fertilizers, to use diesel on the farm, to use diesel to move the food, to process the food. Um, you know the statistics. We're moving all the food 1,500 miles on average. Um, by the way, supermarket organic food is moved even further today. You can buy tulips in Seattle, local tulips in Seattle at Whole Foods, but in fact, they've been shipped down to a regional warehouse in California and then sent back to Seattle. Um, this is the rationalization of our distribution system. Um, there are people in Denmark eating American sugar cookies, and there are people in America eating Danish sugar cookies. And as the, as the economist Herman Daly had said, it would be much more efficient for them to swap recipes. <laughs> so, energy. One reason to buy local. Sovereignty is another. Do we really want to go down the path we have gone down with our energy with food? Do we really want to find ourselves in a position where all our grain is coming from South America, our produce from Mexico? The projections right now that are in this state of California, at the end of this century, there will be no more food production in the Central Valley. It will be houses and highways, wall to wall, mountain to mountain. Do we want to go down that path? Do we want to give away our food independence? National security. Our government knows better than we eaters the risks of a highly centralized food system. Tommy Thompson, when he left uh, Department of Homeland Security in his last press conference, he said something very interesting. He said, for the life of me, I cannot understand why the terrorists have not attacked our food supply, because it would be so easy to do. When all your hamburgers are being ground in the same factory, when all your salad is being washed in the same sink, it is a very precarious way to eat. Um, this highly centralized food system is, is, is very vulnerable to contamination, both deliberate and accidental. And that brings me to the public health justification for local food. We've just had uh, a horrifying illustration of the dangers of 
centralized food. Uh, 200 Americans were seriously sick and three were killed by eating bagged spinach. Um, what does that have to do with local food? Well, that product, there are two senses in which that product is a result of our industrial system. First, that bug, E. coli 0157H7, is a mutation of industrial feedlot agriculture. That's where that bug begins. You do not have that in grass-fed cattle. Second, that bug was able to be spread far and wide because you're taking food, lead, uh, spinach, from many, many farms and you're washing it literally in a single sink in San Juan Batista, California, and then you're sending it all over the country. This is not to say you couldn't get sick from eating spinach at your farmer's market, but you know what? If you did, nobody would hear about it because it wouldn't be a national story. It would be contained, the food chain, you would know who was responsible. Um, the response to this, though, this, to this real threat, is going to be exactly wrong. Instead of seizing on this and the terrorist threat as a reason to decentralize our food supply, which would be, if there was any true concern for homeland security, exactly what the government would be endeavoring to do right now, we are bringing in more regulation and more technology. Um, we are, progressive senators are proposing that we begin to regulate farms the way we regulate meat plants. And you know what that will mean. That will put small farms out of business. So that you see what happens. As industrial agriculture fails and sickens us, the solutions promote more industrialization of agriculture. And that's what we need to resist. We need to move in the other direction. They want, they want to irradiate the food supply to keep us safe. I say we put our faith not in technology or regulation, but in relationships. Relationships with small farms. Um, now, it's very interesting. At my farmer's market, spinach was doing just fine and during this outbreak. Um, people sense these things. They sense that, uh, that buying food from someone they know, someone they trust, is okay. There may be some risk, but it is a manageable risk. Um, and that is one of the reasons, I think, that farmers markets, CSAs, this is the fastest growing sector of the food system. Uh, the number of farmers markets has doubled twice in the last decade. The size of this new rising market slash revolt is unmeasurable. Um, it's an underground economy. No one's paying taxes. Um, and in a way, I take no position on that. Um, in a way, it's much like the last days of Soviet agriculture, when 50% of the food supply was coming off of small gardens, small underground markets. People simply went around the big system, and people here are beginning to do the same thing. Um, now, I want to talk about your vote, two of your votes, to wrap up. It's true, when the government won't protect our land, our communities, our food supply, our economies, we have to do it ourselves. We have to step out of the uh, foreordained paths and systems. Um, we have to act as consumers slash citizens. We need a sense of what it means to be a consumer that is broader than the usual, that perceives being a consumer as a co-creator, a builder of food chains. 
Um, and we can build a local food economy. We are building a local food economy simply by getting out of the supermarket, by growing our own food, by joining the CSA, and by shopping at the farmer's market. Um, all of this is important. We are voting with our forks, and it is a very important vote. But, and I'll leave you on this note, we also need to vote with our votes. Because not all the changes we need can be driven by consumers. Some of them will have to come from government. Some of them will have to come from the change that only citizens can, can bring about. Um, I want to say a word about the most boring topic in American politics, but possibly the most important, and that is the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill, understanding the Farm Bill is the hardest intellectual work I did in the course of writing The Omnivore's Dilemma. It is really makes your head hurt. Um, but it is the rules of the system, of the game that we all eat by. It is the reason we, have, we are in this fast food nation, because the Farm Bill decides that we're going to grow cheap corn and soybeans, which are not foods, which are uh, in, um, raw materials for industrial food. Um, the, the Farm Bill determines how hard it will be for a local meat processor to, to survive. Uh, the Farm Bill determines um, whether local or national um, foods will predominate. Um, and none of us work on this issue. We leave it to the senator from Nebraska to negotiate with the senator from Iowa. We treat it as a parochial piece of legislation. And the odds are your legislators, your senators and representatives, are trading their votes on this bill for other things they want. Why can they do that? Why can they get away with that? Because they're not hearing from you that you care, that this bill setting these rules can, uh, is so critical to the future. Um, we, need to, we need to move away from feedlot agriculture toward local animal agriculture, and that won't happen without changes in the Farm Bill. We need to move from subsidizing cheap grain to helping people produce real food locally. Um, and all that, these rules need to be rewritten, and it's happening next year. Um, so I would, just I would just say to you and leave you with this totally unglamorous message. Um, let your senators and representatives know you're paying attention and you care. Let them know that you understand that the food bill, that the farm bill is really a food bill. And it is our fight. And unless we take it to them, they're going to do the same thing again and we are going to have more corn, more soybeans, more uh, Smithfields, more Cargills, and less farmers markets. So please follow this fight and, uh, and help to wage it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Vote with your forks and your votes. Thank you.